Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Stokes. This is Greg Oddy. This is Carson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Pickett. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Dale McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Cal Brooks. This is Marcus Burris. This is Sean Redditch. This is Tony Spackleton. This is Andrew Blahoff. This is Graham Corn. This is Brian Kill. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Great to see you. And thank you for tuning in to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Tonight, we got episode 19. I'm your host, Dan, and episode 19 is going to be a big one. But first off, I want to say a very big thank you to everyone who has helped spread the word of Amato's Fifth Quarter and, and shared my my social pages and, and told their friends about it. It means the world to me, and, and it's great to see the, uh, the ratings and the listeners going up each episode. That's really, really exciting for me, and and the more people that know about Amato's fifth quarter, obviously, will assist me in being able to get more stars on the show. So that's really what I'm working towards, and I really appreciate everyone who has helped me uh, make that happen. But anyway, let's get into episode 19 tonight, because as I said, we've got another big guest on the show tonight. My special guest is Brian Curl, who is one of the very best basketball coaches we have had here in Australia, one of the legends of the NBL, spent a long, long time in the league and had a lot of success here too. He is also such a genuine person. Just to listen to him talk about 
how passionate he is about bringing up the new generation of not just basketball talent, but people. He is so passionate about children and teenagers being the best they can be in sport and in life and doing the right thing. And And he does things for homeless people. He does things for underprivileged teens. Getting them on the basketball court and teaching them life skills is something that's really important to him. And you're definitely, definitely gonna gonna see that when you or hear that, I should say, when you listen to this episode. He is a very special person and you know, he deserves all the success he's had professionally and just personally. He he is just a fantastic man. But keeping it just what he did on the court as a coach. From 1967 to 2000, he was involved in basketball directly here in Australia. 456 games coached in the NBL. He is a four-time NBL championship coach, of course, in 1979 and 1980. Those first two championships were won by him with the St. Kilda Saints. And then, of course, the 1985 and 1987 seasons were championship-winning years as well with the Brisbane Bullets. He's a two-time NBL Coach of the Year in 1984 and 1990. He was a part of two FIBA World Championship squads as a player in 1970 and 1974. He was a part of an Olympic squad as well as a player in 1972. Was a part of the Olympic squad as an assistant coach in 1988 in that Seoul Olympic Games. He is in the Victorian Basketball Hall of Fame. He's in the Queensland Hall of Fame. And he's also in the NBL Hall of Fame. After all this success on the court and off the court... He actually never picked up a basketball until the age of 21. Unreal. From the St. Kilda Saints, the Brisbane Bullets, and the Australian national team, it's Brian Curl about to come onto the ground. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter and today we've got a very special guest, one of the originals of the NBL and one of the great coaches in the league's history. We've got Brian Curl. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show here tonight. Thanks for having me, Daniel. It's a pleasure, man. Anytime at all. So, Brian, could you give the listeners maybe a little bit of an insight in what you've been up to since you your last coaching gig in the NBL and, and what you're doing now uh, in retirement? Well, um, my last year was in uh, 2000, um, when I was uh, virtually sacked for the last time. I'd been sacked three times, and I thought there was a message there. So, uh, but from there, I, I worked with the, with the Queensland government in sport and recreation for 12 and a half years, and uh, which was great. But still did a little, a little bit of basketball coaching for young people on the side, and. Uh, so I kept my hand in there, but uh, these days it, uh, I'm doing more coaching than ever before. Um, it's a seven-day-a-week. Um, I don't call it a job. It's uh, a seven-day-a-week, uh, an event for me, uh, helping young people um, from five years up to uh, 20, 22 years old to um, you know, give them some insights and also 
some encouragement about uh, what this great game can do for them. I mean, obviously you coach at the highest Australian level. Do you think when you come out of that system, it's hard to give the the game away altogether? Well, I, I tried to. Um, I said, that's it, I've had enough of basketball and, um, you know, I'd been coaching juniors and I'd uh, virtually had enough of dealing with parents, with uh, their young the youngsters and uh, it can become very taxing when you're doing that. And I thought, well, I'm not enjoying it, so I'll... Um, I'll retire from it, which I did. But uh, after about you know, less than 12 months, I honestly, I missed it so much that I got back into it. And uh, and now, I've, um, you know, I'm doing basketball seven days a week. I did six hours of basketball coaching today. And uh, yesterday, I did uh, three or four. And, you know, I've got my own basketball academy now. Um, I run a lot of multicultural programs, indigenous programs, uh, um, I work from you know young young people. I'm also doing a lot of work with uh, youth justice, kids in youth justice uh, programs, and uh, you know just trying to help those kids you know find a pathway for them. So um, you know that they you know I don't want to see them ending up in detention centres. That's not going to do them any good. So if we can help one or two of those, we'd like to do more. But uh, you know we're satisfied. So and. <laughs> And on top of that, I'm coaching um, two under 18 boys teams and under 16, and also my grandson's under 12 team um, of a Friday night and a Saturday morning. So, as you can see, and you know, um, I've just got so much on. Um, last night, I, I watched I think it was uh, four basketball games, including the Bullets and uh, and also um, some NBL one games. So, you know, it's it's. I don't know, you just can't get it out of your blood and uh, I, I just love being involved in it. Yeah, beautiful. And it's good to hear you're um, all about bringing up the next generation. One thing I find very interesting about you and in prep for this interview, I did do a bit of research. As much as you love basketball and as you said, seven days a week and everything for you is basketball, you actually didn't start playing basketball until the age of 21. What's the story there? <laughs> done your research really well mate um oh, that, that's, that's thank that's the biggest compliment you can give me thank you very much <laughs> not too many people know that story and i don't go around and i don't tell it that much because so, you know i'm not a self-promoter in any way at all but look i used to play a lot of tennis uh, when i was young um and a couple of mates and i we used to go around uh, to the tennis tournaments the satellite tournaments here in queensland um Every Friday night, we'd go away some weekend to somewhere to, you know, play in a tournament. And uh, so three of us decided to, uh, look, you know, I was always six foot six, six, seven, and, but I was very skinny, and we decided we need to build ourselves up. So we um, joined the uh, Wollongabba Police Boys Club uh, to go to the gym. And um, the uh, officer on the front counter, he drove me crazy because he just kept saying to me, you know, for the first three weeks, oh, Brian, you know, you should... Uh, you're tall, you should be playing basketball. And, you know, I'd never heard of a game. I'd never seen a game. I'd never seen a basketball, let alone a basketball court. And um, after three weeks, uh, I just said, well, you know, there's only way that I can make this officer happy and to keep him quiet, believe me alone, is to go out the back. There was a, an, an off-season soccer team uh, from Oxley here in, in Brisbane that were playing in, in the off-season to their soccer season. And I joined them. Uh, went out the back and had a training session and um, I quit tennis the next week. Um, I, you know, it's, it's weird. People say, well, you know, you, you just don't do that. I said, well, I don't know. I, I think it was a calling. It was meant to be. And 
or something, but I just loved the game and I fell for the game. And, you know, we, we had an old, it was a three-quarter court concrete, uneven, rusty old cyclone fence around it and wooden backboards with a couple of 40-watt globes out the back. That was my starting court, my first introduction to basketball. And um, we went through the season, got beaten in the grand final, and then they went back to soccer. And I bought, I then joined Lang Park Police Boys Club, uh, who beat us in the final. And I only played up here for 18 months and then got recruited down to um, to Melbourne. That's a, that's a really interesting story. So before, before this all happened, did you have, you just had no interest in basketball whatsoever? Never seen the game, never heard of the game. I honestly hadn't heard of the game. Um, and in those days, you know, it, basketball was, you know, was, and, uh, wasn't a big sport or anything like that. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, and then a guy by the name of Vince Sickey, who uh, was like a second dad to me and, uh, you know, a great mentor for me. Uh, he coached me and he also, um, for, you know, for a, a while sort of thing. And, but Vince got very sick with, uh, with kidneys uh, disease, and he had both his kidneys uh, uh, taken out. He was on a dialysis, but you know, uh, Vince, uh, he 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 did so much for me. And uh, you know, when I came back to Brisbane in 1984, the end of or start of '84, and uh, we played in the '85 Grand Final, I dedicated that Grand Final for Vince Sicchio because he meant so much to me. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. So 21 years old, you start playing basketball. How did you, in three years then, you come from not even knowing what basketball is to three years later at the age of 24 playing for Australia? Well, you know, it's something I try to instill into young kids these days that, you know, the the young people these days, and I love them dearly, you know, but too many of them, um, you know, there's too many distractions for them, right? So I didn't have any detractions at all. But uh, when I went down, I got recruited down to Melbourne and uh, we played, uh, I think it was called the East Coast uh, League or something like that, where, you know, we went to, to Melbourne in a train and uh, I, um, I uh, you know, just got that feel about the whole thing. And uh, so, you know, it... You know, it's it's just weird how it all happened. But getting recruited down there uh, by St Kilda, um, which you know, I went down there for uh, for uh, well three weeks or something. I think it was in 1967 or something like that. Or it was yes, 1967. Yeah, there you go. And and uh, you know, I went down there. I'd I'd uh, only been out of Queensland once, sort of thing, and that was in a train ride down to Sydney and Illawarra where we played these games so you know and then you know I, I got a job down there um, and uh, I worked uh, well five days a week uh, seven o'clock to five o'clock was a physical job with a company called Barrapair Tires and uh, and we I worked Saturday mornings and uh, we we trained in the afternoon and then Sunday we trained from 8 till 12 but, you know, I trained every night and every lunchtime I would go around to the uh, YMCA at Footscray uh, where I was living and uh, and trained there and did did some more weights there, but not with a coach or anything like that. I never had a weight program or anything like that. We never stretched in those days. Uh, stretching was uh, putting your, your shorts on. That was the only time you stretched. And, you just uh, got straight so into it. Just went straight into it. And as you know, winter mornings in Melbourne... Uh, 
can be quite chilly and uh, court nine we used to train on and uh, there's no heaters in there or anything like that uh, so yeah but like I said you know and I think you know I, my son talked to a group of kids up here Simon um, a few weeks ago and was encouraging kids you know what you can get out of the game but to get out of your comfort zone too many young people these days they, they want to be comfortable they don't want to get up at six o'clock and train they don't want to uh, you know train after three o'clock or four o'clock in the day because you know they've got too many detractions distractions and which you know which ones I'm talking about and uh, but I never had those and it, uh, even at, uh, in the holidays at Easter time and that the team used to go up to Yarrawonga up on the Murray River and water ski um, but I stayed back in Brisbane and I was running around the Oval with weights and going to the, the PCYC and doing a little bit more basketball sort of thing uh, so I think it, you know you, it, it's, it was hard work I don't think it could be done today uh, with our present system you've virtually got to go through the, all the uh, ID programs in uh, state basketball and the Australian basketball to make national teams these days, but yeah, I um, I remember you know my teammates at St Kilda they when I got chosen for the first Australian team and then the Olympic team that how lucky I was, you know I wasn't lucky at all. I deserved to be there for the work I put into it and the sacrifices I made. Like I never went out. I I was married at the time and uh, I you know and, and my wife worked and you know and then we had a family as well. So yeah. I, you can make it work. You can make anything work if you really have that desire. And I had a big desire to uh, to do something in the game. And uh, after I realised what this game was all about, because my next question was going to be, do you take? Was it were you naturally gifted, or did you have to work very hard? And from what you're saying, with everything that went on in your life, you really had to work for what you wanted. And you know, you you worked, and it came true because. You made uh, the 1970 World Championships, and then you also played in the Olympic Games and 1974 Championships as well. Yep. What what is the feeling like to put the jumper on and actually represent Australia? Well, uh, the the World Championships compared to the Olympics is uh, you know it's a little bit of chalk and cheese there because the Olympics is the ultimate, that's for sure. But being chosen for that Olympic team, you know, uh, once more you, you you know you you don't know what's going on, but soon you soon realise that you're representing your country and you, you know, you've got all these uh, great athletes around. But like, you know, I remember uh, Munich very well because of Shane Gould and, uh, and also um, uh, the great sprinter who came um, second in the 100 and the, and the 200 metres. Uh, I can't think of it. Just a, she's a lovely girl and she came second uh, to Renee Stetcher. But, you know, you, you're surrounded by those people and these people will were world champions and super, super athletes. You know, I was never a great athlete. I, I was a bit of a Larry Bird in some ways. I wasn't as smart as him or shoot the ball like him. But, you know, like I, I, I couldn't uh, jump over the white line on the court. Uh, you know, that's, but it was hard work. I, I had to, because I was smaller than the centers and I worked and worked and worked and worked on my fitness and my quickness and, and things like that, getting up and down the court and just doing... You know, I was a role player. My role was to set screens and to rebound. Um, you know, uh, I got my most points when uh, when shooters like Eddie Palabinskis or Kenny Cole or Tony Barnett and uh, David Lindstrom, players like that, when they had a bad night and missed some shots and I got the rebound and put them back in. That's where I got my points from. There was no offense around me, but that, that was my role. I was prepared to play it. 
and look where it got me. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy about that. So, uh, you know, it, it was just, it's incredible, you know, and I think too, you know, and I see kids, I coach kids with a hundred times more talent than what I've got, but they don't want to do the hard work, you know, to get there. They, they think that it's just going to come to them and it's not going to come to you. You've got to get out there and work for it. That's, that's the key factor to it. And, and I did that. I really did. Because you can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't do the right thing and work hard, well, then nothing happens. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, you, you'll get by, but, you know, I've, like I said, I've coached some good players that I thought could have been some of Australia's best, but because of the natural ability and uh, things like that, they didn't put in the extra extra yards. And, you know, like you, you look at the guys like Kobe and Michael and, uh, and Larry and Magic and all those guys, like, they were they were number one in, in their tops of, of the sport, but they didn't sit back and uh, and not make themselves better. Look, they trained after games. They were, even after a final, they win a grand, an NBA title. They're out training the next day, and that's the sort of thing I learned is that that hard work like that. You you got to do that, um, and that's in every sport and in every every walks of life. I feel, and I tell kids, you know, it's your choice what you want to be. See, when I left Brisbane to go to Melbourne, they told me I, I'd be lucky if I made Div 2. That's what they told me up here in Brisbane. You know, oh, you'll be lucky to make Div 2 when you go down there. And, you know, when I was told, uh, you know, uh, I, when I got the coaching job at St Kilda, people said that I wouldn't be able to coach and I wouldn't be successful. You know, I, I, I'm i not upset with those people, but it's good. It, it drove me. It drove me. I wanted to prove people wrong. I wanted to challenge those people. But it was my choice. It was my decision to do it. Whereas today, you know, and that's what I say to kids. If you, look, it's in any sport and in any walks of life. If you want to be a scientist or a, a, um, a specialist doctor or even, a, a, you know, someone on a checkout, you can do that. No, don't let anyone tell you you can't. And if I hadn't li- uh, listened to those people, Daniel, I wouldn't be talking to you now because you wouldn't know who I was. These are the things, and I tell that to all the kids I talk to when I go and do talks at kids at schools and stuff like that. You know, I made the choice. You make the choice. You know, you don't have to be rude. You don't have to be arrogant about it. You just make the choice, what you want to do, where you want to go. And that's what I did. The way you're talking now, you make it sound so easy to just do what you want. It should be just a simple thing of you do what you want to do, but you've got to be prepared to work hard. It precisely, you know, that's, and it's a simple remedy, really. You know, get out of your comfort zone, kids. You know, get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, go and train, 6.30. I did a session at 6.30 Saturday morning. I did a session this morning. Well, I did a session this morning from 7 a.m. till 12 p.m. It's 12 noon. You know, but the the dedicated ones are coming at 7 o'clock and that's 6.30. And they're the ones I admire and I just love those kids getting out of bed. And as, uh, as much as it's sunny Queensland up there, it's still a bit chilly at the moment, so... Um, you know, and you've got to do that. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Played with Eddie Palabinskis, and that's a name I feel these days probably in Australia people don't give the recognition that they perhaps used to. He didn't play in the NBA, but he was the first Australian to be listed on an NBA roster. You got to play with him firsthand. How good was he back then? Look, he was probably one of the greatest shooters I've ever played with um 
I can't say I can't speak highly of his assist. Uh, Eddie wouldn't pass the towel on the bench. You know, he he was that uh, he just wanted to shoot the ball, but but he could shoot it. Um, but you know, he he was another one. Eddie, you know, you link Palabinskis, and then you look at um, some of those other great um, you know European players and the time they put into the game. Like Eddie didn't work; he just trained every day. Like he. Held the record in uh, college basketball there one year for a hundred straight foul shots, I believe. Um, you know, and that's just because of. You know, I played. Here's a story. A couple of years ago, uh, three or four years ago, we played in a um, a world championship for for masters over in um, over in uh, Florida, and uh, Eddie got fouled, and uh, he's going to foul on. I line up for the foul shot to rebound on the foul. His foul shot. He told me to get out of there. What are you doing? Don't you think I'm going to make it? And, you know, the son of the gun made it. He just, you know, he never missed a foul shot in, in the Masters competition. He said, you know, with a little bit of arrogance about it, but he was confident with himself. And, uh, yeah, but he was a great shooter. There's no doubt about that. Because he taught Shaquille O'Neal, didn't he? He worked with him. Yeah, with his foul shooting, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know if he, he made him any better, but... Uh, I think he'd probably pick him up a few percentage, but uh, yeah, Shaq just uh, just had such big hands with his foul. So Eddie, Eddie did do a lot of work with him, and I still think he does with some uh, some clients who want to come to him. And uh, you know, but Eddie's like me, getting on a bit now, and uh, he's uh, had a hip replacement and all that, so he's a little bit restricted in in what he can do these days. Why do you think he never played in? He never got to play an NBA game. Well, he, uh, defensively, he would have got, uh, you know, and athletically, as, uh, like he had a jump shot, a legitimate jump shot, but Eddie uh, wasn't the strongest athlete. And, uh, you know, that, that's probably the main reason. I, I think physically uh, he wasn't up to it um, to, to play in the NBA in those days. Yeah, fair call. I want to go forward a little bit to the 1988 Seoul Olympics, where the Boomers finished fourth. Um, still the equal highest finish in the country's history and your assistant coach under Adrian Hurley. Now, I've had Andrew Vlahov on the show and he spoke of it from a player's perspective. What are your recollections of that tournament and what do you think was the reason the Boomers couldn't quite get over that hurdle in 1988? The Spanish to take a two-pointer. They fire up for three. Australia's ball. It's Australia's ball. They get it to Smythe. Four seconds left. They've got a one. Carroll out of the backcourt. Into Drakey and Australia's won into the semi-finals. It's 77-74 Australia. That was the Aussie girls in the background. They're in the semi-finals. The men are in the semi-finals. What a great two days this has been for Australian basketball. In that uh, era, you got to remember the uh, the Russians were one team. One, you know, there wasn't the, the Lithuanians and Latvians and all that, or uh, you know, different split-up teams. And same with Yugoslavia. You know, they were one nation. So those two are were powerhouses and then you had the, the, the Americans who probably wasn't their strongest Olympic team they, they had that year uh, they put in there but they still had you know the, the Admiral and uh, a lot of other good players but look we, we played a we had a heck of a tournament um, we, we had some great young players uh, you know in Mark Ragsky uh, Andrew Gaze of course and Blah Hoff uh, you know the Hoff and uh, uh, Mark, yeah, like Mark Bradby, but uh, and also, you know, we had Luke Longley. You know, and then we had Phil Smythe and experience and Wayne Carroll, Larry Sensock. 
but we we probably were just maybe one year off it. But you know, we we gave the Americans a half decent game in the in the bronze medal game, and uh, you know, we were the first team to play for a medal um, in the Australian for the Australians, and you know, no one's done any better than us yet at all. And uh, you know, so you know, and I think time's going to come now with Gorgian coaching and the players that are available to him, but. You know, um, and we've got so many great players coming through the game now, so it'll be uh, an interesting thing. But it, yeah, we we did we had a, a real special tournament, and and those those guys that I'm talking about there, they they were very tough and uh, um, and you know did a great job. Um, you know, for guys that hadn't had that huge international basketball experience, they had a lot of experience because they all went to the uh, as the AIS, as it was called in those days. Adrian did a super job. Um, there was Adrian and Barry Barnes and myself, and uh, you know we were well prepared. Uh, Adrian, this one thing, you know, he did, does prepare the team well, um, you know, because he's, he's a real academic. But you know, he he did super, and uh, he had the team. You know, we, we scouted the teams well. You know, we were well prepared, but you know, we just um, lacked that because um, Luke and them were still still youngsters in those days. So you mentioned there that Australia's in a very good position at the moment with Gorgian uh, going into the Olympic Games. So you still watch Boomers today and you still believe they're good enough to, to win a medal at this tournament? Oh, I do, you know, and, you know, you still got Paddy and, uh, and, uh, and you know, Simmons will play for sure. Um, you know, guys like that, that we've got some super players and, and Joe Inglis and, uh, yeah, and we've got hey, we've got a lot of great players here with uh, Giddy. I'm sure he'll he'll definitely make the team and uh, um, Bryce Cotton, and, uh, hopefully. Well, and, and look, if Cotton comes, look, you know, I think it's going to be just a heck of a team, you know, because Bryce is a great. So I watched him play against the Bullets last night. He uh, he had a very casual three quarters, but when the game was on the line, the last quarter, he just made the Bullets look second rate. Um, he's he's incredible, Bryce Cotton. I'm surprised he hasn't yeah, got he is. a bit yeah, more he's one of the Yeah, oh, for sure. It's you know you want there. You, you asked me why Eddie didn't make the press. Well, why doesn't Bryce Cotton make the NBA? He has played NBA before, but it's like ever since he's come to the NBL, he hasn't got a lot of recognition from NBA clubs, which is no. which is a bit. You'd expect it to be the other way around. Do you know what I mean? Playing the NBL and then get NBA attention rather than play in the NBA and actually play quite well and then come here and then it's sort of nothing's happened? Well, it's interesting. You know, like Corey, Corey Craig uh, came here and now he's playing in the NBA and now uh, also uh, Oliver that played in um, Cairns. You know, he's played in the NBA now the other day. So, you know, you're right. Like, those guys have made it. and uh, Even Mitch me, Creek. Like, Mitch Creek. You know, there's a lot of kids, uh, not a kids there, a lot of players that have played here and gone on in the end. But why hasn't Bryce Cotton? I, I, I don't know what the answer is there. And uh, um, I was hoping to catch up with Trevor um, in the next few days. He's up in Cairns tomorrow, but they come back here on Wednesday. So I'd love to sit down and talk to him about that. I, I didn't have, uh, have time last night at the game. I want to go back a little bit. So... 1979 is when the National Basketball League starts and you are the inaugural coach of St. Kilda and you lead them to the first ever NBL minor championship or minor premiership with a 15-3 record and then of course you win the first ever NBL championship with a one-point win against the Canberra Cannons. 
Uh, now, back then, you had Larry Sengstock and Danny Morsu and Daryl West and these sort of guys. What, what's your, what are your memories of that first ever NBL season? What does it mean to you to be the first ever NBL coach? Because that's something that no one can ever take away from you. And what was the NBL like in that first season? Like, what were the crowds like and what was the atmosphere like of, of that first ever season in the, of the league? 20 seconds remaining. Canberra one up. 20 seconds. 18 seconds to go. Tony Barnett. Let's look Steve at the clock. Penny. We'll keep the clock going for you. Robbie Kadeem. Tony Barnett. Robbie Kadeem. Six, Six seconds. seconds. Pass. Victor! Two points. One point. One second. There. All right. Peter Vitals. Wow. What a finish. What a fantastic game of basketball. Fantastic finish. A great game. Boy, you could not have wanted better than that for a final of the first National League. I like the scriptwriter who wrote that one. Drew Morfitt's just about to grab hold of Brian Curl. All right, Brian. What an exciting finish. A great finish, mate. Oh, you know, it's just too much. I'm really pleased for the fellas in the club because, you know, in the league that has finished up this way, I'm, I'm glad that we won, but... It's a great game, and you know, I hope the people enjoyed it. I hope the people from Australia enjoyed it. Well, it's got to be the greatest advertisement for basketball of all time. What an atmosphere. It's fantastic atmosphere. You know, and I'd like to thank all our supporters for coming out and supporting our club. You know, and that's why we wanted to play in Melbourne, because we thought we owed it to them. And I'd like to thank my guys, because, you know, they're one hell of a team, and they did one hell of a job today. And, you know, I'd like to thank, you know, everybody, the, the TV, and uh, I'd like to say hello to all my family and people in Queensland that have been watching the game as well. It's great. Are you pleased that uh, St Kilda went into the National League? Oh, <laughs> am I pleased? You know, I, I think it's the greatest thing for basketball, this league, and, and, you know, I just hope it gets bigger and it grows next year, which I think it will, and I hope everybody throughout Australia really gets behind it, more so than they have this year, because I think it's just the number one, you know, event, you know. And, Oh, you know. Good on you, Brian. Well, we'll let you go back and celebrate. Daniel, you know, that's, you know, well, to start with, Danny Wasu got injured the week before the grand final. He never played. Daryl West got injured in the game, early in the game. He didn't play the full game. So I remember that quite clearly. You know, but we had Larry Sandstock, we had Robbie Kadee, and we had the Steve great Brainy. Steve Breeny. And, and, you know, like, Steve was one of the best garbage men and... You know, he knew what his limitations were. He knew what his role was. And uh, everyone would love to have a Steve Brenny on your team. You know, and he's just one heck of a, a player. You know, well, we had Peter Biddles uh, from Adelaide. He was on the team as well. And, uh, but, you know, we had uh, Frankie, I mean, Frankie Masuga was on that team as well. We never had any Americans. We're the only team to win a championship, the first championship, without any imports. And that's something that I really am proud of and something that I remember, you know, to my dying days. I think that was one heck of achievement. Uh, Canberra, who we played, they had two, uh, two Americans in uh, Cal Stamp and, um, and uh, the Weasel. Uh, what's his name from Canberra? He's, he's only one of the few players that's played in, only played in one club, Herbie McGeechan. There you go. Um, so, you know, and it, it was one of those games. It was tit for tat and uh, Larry had a great game, a super game and uh, and so did Cal Stamp. They traded baskets uh, there for a while and you know, and on the boards it was uh, it was a heck of a contest and we were one point down with three seconds to play and you know, we called a timeout that uh, 
you know, in those situations, you know, I, I wanted the ball to get into Steve Breeny's hands or Tony Barnett, but uh, every time Steve, uh, that Robbie passed it to him, Robbie Kadee passed it to him, they passed it back to him. They said, oh, I don't want it. And then uh, Peter Beatles cuts along the baseline and uh, Robbie, how he got the ball through the middle of the keyway and uh, Beatles did a reverse layup and uh, we win by a point. My, I, I, it's a, so vivid, so vivid that uh, that last uh, section of the game, and uh, it's something that I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. That's for sure. But you know, it was just. You know, I had coffee with Robbie here a couple of weeks ago, and you know, I was talking to Jace, son who's playing with the Brisbane Bullets up here, and you know, I talked to him about it. Uh, you know how great his dad was, and uh, and Robbie was a real thinker of the game, and, and Jason is the same. You know they. They know the game, they read the game, and you know you, you can give instructions in section in a, in a situation like that. But you know you, you let the players really. I let them play on instinct. You know, I I never bog players down with too many rules and uh, and things like that. You know, I, I I wanted them to express themselves on the on the court, and uh, and Robbie was a you know he was a he was a, a real champion at doing that. Rightio, I'm going to stop you right there because it's quarter time here on A5Q. I highly suggest you go back into the archives and listen to last week's episode with former SANFL legend and inaugural Adelaide Crows coach, Graham Corns. To sit down and have a chat with Cornsy was unbelievable. Dream come true. Here's a little snippet. I underestimated a couple of their players. Like, Sean Denham was supposed to be a tagger, you know. He was supposed to, you know, I anticipated he would tag Tony McGuinness and he did but he got off the leash Michael Long got off the leash you know um, I didn't I didn't play enough to, uh, didn't pay enough atten- attention or impart enough demands to our midfield for their defensive action and it was as simple as that They, you know, Kevin Sheedy I spoke to him about it as he said, he told, look, we've only got to kick the next two goals, and we've got the rest of the game to kick five goals, and that's what that's what happened. And we missed two really easy, like Sean Wren missed a goal before half time, Andrew Jarman missed a goal in the last quarter, like easy goals. And, and I don't think we'd so we'd played away from home for the almost the, the previous month, and I've I've often said the guys didn't didn't recover, rehydrate and prepare well enough. Cornsy talks family, the army, SANFL days, the first few seasons at the Adelaide Crows, as well as, of course, that fateful 1993 preliminary final, which that little snippet uh, was from. Talking about when, when Adelaide led by 42 points at halftime against Essendon, only to let the game slip. So definitely go check that one out. But let's get back to Brian Curl for now. So what about the year after 1980? St Kilda go back-to-back. Rocky Smith joins that year and takes the competition by storm. He wins the MVP and the grand final MVP. You destroy the West Adelaide Bearcats 113-88. to What is it like when you go back-to-back for starters and what made that team pretty much invincible? St Kilda 113 to West Adelaide 88. 113 to 88. The championship trophy being handed over by Dr. John Rashke, the president of the Australian Basketball Federation, to the St Kilda. Ah, well, Rocky Smith was tough. He was one heck of a player. Um, one of the purest shooters 
I think has ever been in the league, to be honest with you. And Robbie, uh, Rocky, he didn't dribble the ball 20 or 30 times like they do these days. I'm probably exaggerating there, but, you know, it's all dribble, dribble, dribble. Rocky was, uh, he'd get the ball and, you know, one bounce up for the shot. You know, minimum pass, great balance, great follow through, left-hander. You know, I've, you know, I think I've been fortunate. I think I've had two of the top five American players play for me in the NBL, in Leroy Loggins and, and Rocky Smith. You know, two out-and-out champions. And, you know, now I'm seeing Bryce Cotton play and things like that, you know, who's, who's a beautiful shooter and things like that. But, you know, the game's played differently. But, you know, Rocky was a guy that, you, you know, you get the ball to and uh, he'd, he'd do the job for you. You know, we had a, that team in, in 80, well, you know, we brought Rocky in and when I was uh, picked Rocky up, I, um, my assistant coach, Rolly Holcomb, said, Curly, I can't believe you got him because Rolly was from that same area. Uh, where Rocky was from in um, in California, and he said, "There's no way this guy will make the pros." But uh, he come out here, and, and the thing I remember about Rocky, and you, know, you, you talk about like why they are champions. Rocky, in those days, I think it took 22 hours or something plus to fly from Los Angeles to Australia. Rocky landed in Melbourne. We greeted him at the airport, and he said, uh, "Is there any chance you can take me to a court?" I said, "What for?" He said, oh, "I want to shoot around." Straight so he's flying for 22 hours. We go to Albert Park and he shoots around for an hour and a half. Just been on that flight. Time difference, you know, remember that. And he shot and shot and shot. And uh, I said, heck, we might have a player here, you know. And and that's what he was. You know, Rocky never worked. He, work was a, was a bit foreign to him. But, boy, work on the basketball court, work at training. And uh, he never messed around at training. You know, he was just a a great out-and-out shooter, but, you know, how many people would get off the plane after, you know, 22 hours, 23 hours flying and go work out for an hour and a half on a basketball court? That's what that's what makes players stand out. And, uh, you know, that's like um, the other players that I've had, you know, why they, be, why they were champions and why they became champions. Rocky Smith, why do you think he never played NBA? Uh, probably a little bit small uh, and probably... Uh, Rocky wasn't very uh, uh, up to date with that word defense either, but uh, his defense was his offense. And uh, he said, "Coach, you know, if I, it's no good me sitting on the bench with Dale." So, but, you know, he played reasonable defense, but I think uh, that was uh, that was probably the main reason. He wasn't a, what you'd call a super, super, super athlete. He was a good athlete, but he wasn't an outstanding athlete. And you know, you've got to remember, there's a lot of players like Rocky Smith over in the USA. Um, it's the same with Bryce Cotton. There's, there's, there's hundreds of them, hundreds and hundreds of them, um, the same ability. Yeah, fair call. So 1981 was an interesting year because you won, again, the minor premiership. And, and to be honest, you probably would have won the championship again. But you ended up withdrawing from the finals to compete in the 1981 FIBA Club World Cup, which doesn't exist anymore. What are your memories of that tournament? You know, I wasn't 100% in favour on going. You know, I wanted to win, win three titles in a row. You definitely um, would have. I thought, and we were three games clear of everybody else. And um, I was sort of overruled by, you know, two or three people who wanted to go on it. Um, and the NBL wouldn't change the final or bring it forward one week so we could play in the grand final, which I thought was very... Um, 
it was disappointing of the NBL in those days as well for making that decision. Um, but I guess after we won the first two, they probably didn't want us to win the first next three. But we did win games there. We beat uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv, who won it uh, the two years before their club championships. We beat them. And uh, we uh, we beat a couple of other teams. We, we finished fourth in that tournament um, and did one hell of a job. You know, we played Clemson, the American team, and uh, uh, we, we played all the top teams and, of course, the Brazilian teams. And we, we had a great team in Rocky. Um, it's probably the worst thing we did. The other reason we took Rocky over there and uh, they um, they offered him, I think it was seventy or $80,000 and we were paying him about, I think, $6,000 to play for St Kilda. So I could never understand why he took that deal of uh, $80,000 to play. But, uh, you know, so we lost Rocky and uh, he became a household name. He's on billboards and everything in, in Brazil. So it wasn't the fact that we couldn't even play that excuse me, three game, uh, three titles, was the fact that we lost Rocky Smith, you know, because Rocky was very happy out here in Australia and was, was living a, a reasonable, reasonably good life. That's why he stayed in, in Brazil, yeah. He was, um, yeah, he, they recruited him to stay there and uh, so he never came back. He stayed there, never even went back to America or anything like that, just stayed in Brazil and... Uh, and joined in um, with the in Brazil were very tough then in those days with um, in Olympics and World Championships, as we all know. How did it come to an end at St Kilda? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think what year that was. In May 1983, it was. That was my last year there. And, uh, you know, it, it came about because uh, there was somebody else that um, had aspirations and... Uh, got in the ear of the uh, president of the club and, uh, you know, uh, everybody knew that I was going to get get uh, sacked or fired or cut, call it what you like. And, uh, you know, and look, I look at it this way, it, you know, people don't, don't like you. Well, you know, that's fine. They don't want you there. You don't want to be somewhere where you're not wanted. So I said, fine, you know. And, and then I had about four other teams that... Um, um, wanted me to, to go and coach them, but you know, I always wanted to come back to Queensland, and uh, so it wasn't a happy ending. And the disappointing thing was that you know, I only played with that, I only played with two clubs here in Lane Park and uh, and uh, Wollongabba Police Boys Club and, and St Kilda. Um, you know, I, I was pretty loyal, sort of a person, and uh, and you know, the club was you know, it was good, it was a great club, but then there was a few changes on the committee and actually there was committees in those days. But unfortunately, you know, um, they uh, didn't stand by me and, and, you know, but I don't hold any grudges against that. That's one of those things that happen. And, you know, like I, I tell people, that, you know, who want to be a coach and I say, well, you know, if you want to be a professional coach, there's only two types of coaches, those who have been sacked and those who are waiting to be sacked. So, you know, it's your choice if you want to be a coach. You know, because it's not a secure job. It doesn't matter, matter who you are. It's very rare that a coach ends their career 100% on good terms. It wasn't 100%, but, you know, yeah, I like I said, you know, I wasn't going to, uh, you know, so I didn't mention any names now, you know, and, and I talk to those people now. So, you know, um, and, and I joke about it to them, you know, that uh, what happened and things like that. So, look, you know, Life's too short. We've got to move on. Um, you know, we lose a lot of energy by holding grudges and things like that. And, uh, you know, um, so, you know, it, it was to be. And you know what? Like, uh, you know, you asked me about how I started playing basketball. 
and then I get the opportunity to, to come back to Brisbane. So it was meant to be probably for what happened up here in Brisbane. 1984. So as, as we've said, that's the year where you joined the Bullets and where that dynasty starts. So led by yourself, you had Leroy Loggins, who's widely considered the greatest import to ever play in the NBL. Ron Radliffe, Cal Bruton, John Dorge and, and Captain Larry Sangstock. Four grand final series in a row where you go runners-up, champions, runners-up, champions. What made that Brisbane Bullet team so good? Well, you know, um, he joined us in 85, Cal. He wasn't there in 84. And, of course, we lost to Perth by one point in that, that grand final. And, uh, unfortunately, you know, we, we had a... Look, when I came up here to Brisbane, I, I wanted a bunch of guys that were willing to uh, play for each other and uh, play for the city of Brisbane and Queensland. Um, and I wanted guys that were, you know, really on side with each other, supported each other. And, uh, you know, like I had Larry and uh, uh, Ronnie, like you said, Leroy, who you're correct, I, I think he's still the, the greatest. And, he, you know, what you know what he's done. And I, I'm not comparing it. I'm not saying Bryce, any of Bryce Cotton, anything like that. I think Bryce is a great player and I've got the utmost respect for him. But... Leroy, you know, we always knew if we wanted a basket, we went to Leroy. Um, and, uh, you know, he had a, he, he, he was just such a competitor, you know, and uh, like he's always said, he didn't predict, he just produces. And, uh, and he did, he just kept producing and producing and producing. But that's the sort of person he was. And, you know, uh, the one, the two things about Larry, uh, to, uh, Rod, Leroy, sorry, and uh, Rocky Smith is, when they walked on the, over that into that gym, they switched on. They were there to work. They never messed around, never took a shot they wouldn't take in the game, never fooled around. They just came in, trained, end of training, clock off, and then go and, you know, do what they do. That's what made those guys champions there as well. So, you know, we, we were a great unit. Uh, you know, it got split up because a certain player wanted to... Uh, he had more uh, aspirations for himself and not the team. But, you know, like I said, once more, that those things happen in sport. But, yeah, it was four great years. And uh, and then again in 1990, again, of course, uh, which I had a great team of guys, but we just fell short to Perth in 1990. That's really interesting what you say about Leroy Loggins uh, versus Bryce Cotton. And that conversation still lingers. I think... I mean, Bryce Cotton is without a doubt the best player in the competition at the moment. But the thing about Leroy is he played 20 seasons in the NBL. Bryce Cotton has been here since 2017. You know, to, 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 to say that Bryce Cotton is a better import than Leroy Loggins, you'd think Bryce Cotton would have to be here for at least another four or five years to be in that conversation because Leroy played his entire career in the NBL. It's a very good point, a very strong point, um, you know. And I, I think you know, Bryce, in two or three years' time or four years' time, we might be saying, "Hey, this guy was as." But you know, I, it always amazes me when people compare uh, past players or past past racehorses. As, as you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm, I'm not a gambler, but I, I'm a fan of the racing industry. You know how people can compare horses with Farlap. You can't do that, you know. They, they're the champions now, but each person does their things, you know. Like Michael Jordan, he's a standout, but 
you know, it, it, it's it's so hard to compare people against other people, I believe. And I think it's unfair to do that, you know, because uh, they are great in their own right. And I, look, I, I think, you know, Bryce, especially if he takes out Australian citizenship, you know, like Leroy played for Australia in the Olympics in, in Barcelona, which I thought was great for Leroy. And, uh, you know, uh, but, but Lee, yeah, he, uh, he was... Uh, you know, when you look at him and things like that, and, and you know, like Lee tells the story, and I, I don't tell this story much, but and Lee made me quite aware of it. But he played that first year, season back here in 1984, and then his wife made him go home with him back to um, back to the states. And uh, I got this phone call on Christmas Eve, and uh, in 1984, Leroy had been back there a couple of months, and uh, it's Leroy, and he. <laughs> He borrowed a dime to call me reverse charges and said, uh, Coach, he said, can I come back and play for you? And I said, Lee, when can you get on a plane? He said, I can get on the next couple of days. I said, Leroy, get on a plane, all right? You get back here. Now, Lee says that, you know, I've uh, virtually saved his life because of the, uh, the situation he was living in over there. And, you know, which to me, you know, I can't... Uh, that's why it's hard for me to care, compare anybody with Leroy because, you know, he, he shares that story now and, uh, and tells that story quite regularly. And he's such a genuine guy and, uh, you know, I, you know, I love him to death. You know, Lee, Lee and I had not a fallout, but, you know, when he, uh, a lot of champions, they, they're so proud of pride, there's so much pride and everything. And uh, Leroy's, when he's last couple of years, I wasn't the one that told him he was finished, but, you know, there was one season there towards the end, my last season in 2000, where Lee, uh, you know, he just had, you know, really lost it, and I didn't start him, and that was, you know, that was a sad move we had to play, uh, that we had to take, and and I had to take that. It was hard, but you know, he was disappointed with it, uh, you know, but I did explain to him why. So yeah, look, it's it's it is it's so hard to compare players, you know, like Andrew Gaze, you know, like Andrew's a great player. Um, but, you know, he, like Larry Stenstock, he, he went to four Olympics or something like that, four or five Olympics. I'm not sure how many. I think it could be four anyway, I know for sure. But, you know, and this, there are some other great Australians, like Phil Smythe. Phil Smythe was uh, one of the best point guards in, that Australia's ever had and ever seen. You know, one of the smartest, uh, you know, a, a winner. Um, a leader, a real leader on the court, which, uh, you know, and, and leaders are, are born, they're, they're not made, and Phil was a really true leader. There's a, a lot of names that never really got the recognition they deserve out of Australia, I feel. Oh, you know, but Phil, you know, I, I, I coached Phil, he come play for me for one season at, um, at St Kilda there, and, uh, you know, I got to know the guy fairly well, and, uh, you know, I was only talking to him on the phone for an hour and a half the other night, driving down to the Gold Coast, and uh, you know we were reminiscing and talking about those those former days that we had together, and uh, um, and on the Australian team and things like that. But you know, Phil, you know, he, he was he like you know, and you, like I said, I I think that Phil, um, and and the team wasn't built around Phil like uh, it was with Drewy, and Drewy's a great player. Don't let me take them. Huh? Don't get me wrong, I've got the most respect for him at all. And uh, it's uh, quite interesting. I, I played against Lindsay, his dad. Um, I was coached by Lindsay. I coached against Lindsay, you know, and not very often you get an opportunity to do something like that. And one of the one of the great people of 
basketball in Australia who who made basketball um, very successful here. What about 1985? You beat the 36ers in the grand final, and that's that's the last year where the grand final series or lack thereof. There was only one grand final game that decided the champion. The year after you play the first grand final series again against the 36ers. First of all, how did you beat the 36ers in 85? And then in 86, why were you unable to go back to back? Because that 86 team with Al Green and Mark Davis, Daryl the Iceman Pierce with Ken Cole were known as the Invincibles. What made them so difficult to beat that second time round? So Brian Curl... What a marvellous moment for him. He goes into the record books as the only man ever to coach a team to three championships. And the countdown, Ron Nadler for the last throw, it is all over. Brisbane have won the final. Have a look at Brian Curl going over to his former coach, Ken Cole. There's emotion. That's real emotion. Two great Crowd friends, countdown. two top Spear with the shot. No, that is it, ladies and gentlemen. Open your cans of West End because that is the ball game. The West End 36ers are Australian champions in an awesome display of power basketball. Brilliant basketball. There's the man, Ken Cole, in his last game as the 36ers coach has led them to a national championship. The saddest thing was that uh, we had one player that was on a different uh, different page to the rest of us. Uh, and that was disappointing. And like I said, if, if everyone's not on the same page, it doesn't matter how good your players are, you won't win. And uh, and that's what happened to us. And uh, you know, and and they they had a great um, a great series that year with Coley. And you know, they were on a mission because we embarrassed them in that the year before at uh, at Chandler Stadium, and uh, you know where we beat them by twenty plus points and. Uh, but, you know, that game there, you know, I still remember that one so well because that was my first win here in Brisbane. And uh, and um, to do that for the people of Brisbane and Queensland was uh, something that I was very uh, proud of. And, uh, you know, it, it's a really great memory that I have and I'll always have. So, yeah, it, th- those were great days. And uh, But, you know... Like I said, Al was angry. I don't think uh, I don't think the chairman played in the game in the in '85 against us in that final. If I remember rightly, I think he was injured. Al, Al going down because you know Al love I love playing against Al and catching against Al. You know he, he talk and he you know he uh, he talked a lot of smack and that's great. And, and we we I'm great friends with Al. And uh, but you know on the court we were he was a fierce competitor, but. You know, we and Leroy stole the look. The game was pretty tight there at one stage. Leroy stole the ball and went down and did a one of the biggest slams he'd seen in the NBL at that time, and it turned the game. And uh, you know, Radcliffe hit a few, a few baskets. Cal hit a few baskets, and we just blew them out of the water then, and uh, it was all over. But Leroy, Leroy sparked us off. He, he was one of that igniters. Referee says, "Fellas, take a break. It's half time." Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid. Subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility 
and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. So after the 1986 Grand Final Series loss, you have a public fallout with Cal Bruton. If you're okay to speak about it, could you maybe give the listeners an insight into maybe some of the reasons for that may have been? Well, it, it was Cal's decision. Um, was it mutual? We just, well, it... it Look, Cal wanted bigger and better things, and uh, uh, Cal, uh, you know, he was, uh, what can I say? You know, it worked out that uh, the city, Brisbane, wasn't big enough for Cal and Brian Curl, um, and we decided on that and agreed on that, you know, because Cal, you know, like, like I said, you know, Cal sort of claimed that he, you know, that people come to see him and things like that, and people... And I said, Carl, you know, what about Larry? What about Leroy? What about Danny and and, uh, and Robert Sibley and people like that? I said, you know, we're a team, mate. This is what it's all about. And um, so, you know, we, we, we did have a fallout, um, you know, which, you know, I don't go into it too much. I talk to Cal, um, you know, uh, now and again now, but uh, it's just because we're in different states and things like that. But, you know, it was one of those things that, that happened in sport and, of course, it was good for Cal. He, he went over to Perth, and of course, uh, we were happy to beat Perth in 1987. And uh, then they come out um, and beat us again on our home court. So, you know, sport's funny like that, you know, but uh, every game's different, and uh, you're only good as your last game. But, you know, he went on and did a lot of good things over in Perth, and uh, we still did a lot of good things here in Brisbane. So the 1987 championship, as you said, you defeated the Wildcats in two games. Back then and, and still now, it seems impossible to beat the Wildcats in finals. But that elevated you to four NBL championships. And you were well and truly solidified as, well, back then you were the greatest basketball coach of all time and still now absolutely up there as one of the greatest coaches uh, this league has seen. What does it mean to win championships at two different clubs? Well, I, you know, it was it was great, you know, to win the first two in the NBL history of the NBL, um, and they can, no one can take that away from me. Like I say, '79, we had an all Australian team, no Americans at all. Um, so that that was was super, and that it, that means a, a lot to me. And uh, and you know, it's the game is. Uh, you know, in '87 and coming back here, I wanted to do it for Vinciki. I wanted to, I wanted to win for my father as well, who was a police officer and he was a rugby league player. He didn't when I took up basketball, he didn't know what I was talking about, and he thought it was a, you know, a sissy's game type sort of thing. And but you know, he never missed a grand final or anything like that when I started when I played up here in the grand finals for Brisbane and come down from Charters Towers, Townsville, where he was an officer up there. So that they were great great things there that, you know, I, I I never do anything for myself, to be honest with you. And it might sound, you know, people might not believe this, but, you know, I, I dedicated those, you know, to my father and, and also to, uh, to Vince, but also the people up here. And, uh, it, you know, it gives me great pleasure. And, uh, you know, people still, and even last night we had a, um, you know, the retirement of the jersey of Rob Sibley and, uh, and people made comments on Facebook and things like that, you know, about me, that I should be up there as well. You know, that doesn't worry me, you know, look, 
you know, have, uh, you know, one thing I will say, you know, I got inducted in the Hall of Fame in Victoria before I ever did up here in Queensland. And it was only last couple of years ago that Leroy and I got inducted there. And I thought, you know, if anybody should have been in that Hall of Fame, it would have been Leroy and Brian, Leroy Loggins and Brian Curl. But, you know, it came along and, uh, you know, especially when you're in, in the NBL Hall of Fame, the Australian Basketball Hall of Fame, that, those things are fantastic, you know. And, you know, but I, I just, like I said, I enjoy what I did for the people of Brisbane and to people that I, I really dedicated it to. And, uh, you know, and I, no one can take that away from you. But, you know, Brian Curl didn't put the basketball on the map here in Brisbane, Queensland. You know, I had a lot of great people. I had a good team around me, Daniel, a good team around me. And I, I said to those people, this is my vision, this is what I want to do, and this is what I know we can do. If you want to come along with the ride, jump on board now. And I think there was only one person that didn't jump on board. And in that, and like you know, good teams will be a great team of players, as we all know. It's the oldest saying around. So it, that's what I think is is great. Um, in you know, they're doing those things for the game, and uh, you know, I, I you know, and I do that in business now. I I don't have toxic, negative people around me. I'm not interested in those type of people. You know, if you're not on on board with me, I'd rather you, you went somewhere else where you weren't. You're not happy being here with me. Well, go, go somewhere else and, and play somewhere else or coach somewhere else or do what you want to do. But, you know, together we will achieve more. And uh, that's what I, I, I firmly believe that and I try to instill that into young people today. To be honest, it is inspiring listening to you speak like that. It's really interesting you, you're talking about what basketball, what you've done for basketball within Queensland. You know, that's something that not a lot of people would say and how much it meant for the state to see that success. But do you look at that period? So say 84, 85, 86, 87. Do you ever look at that and think, gee, maybe we could have four-peated, won four championships in a row? Because you guys and the Sydney Kings in the early 2000s are the closest who have ever come to winning four in a row. Is that something you look back on and think, what could have been? Yeah, what could have, would have, maybe, you know, and things like that. But, you know, it, it didn't happen. Uh we were beaten by a, a, a better team in, in, in West Adelaide, and uh, and we were beaten by a better team in, in Perth when um, sorry when Canberra beat us. So, you know, and I don't want to take nothing away from those teams. I think that'd be very arrogant of me to say that. But yeah, you know, we had the opportunity. But on the day, we could have played them the next day, and the result would could have been different. Uh, you know, that's for sure. But you know, it, it is what it is, and. Uh, you know, to, to think that uh, here in Brisbane, I, I, well, I competed in five grand finals and won two of them. Um, you know, that that was great. And uh, played in two grand finals with St Kilda. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, I probably achieved, uh, uh, you know, a great amount there. And, you know, it's just talking to you that I you, you make me realise exactly what I did. Uh, I don't go around all day thinking about, oh, I'm Brian Curl, I did this, I did that. You know, but you know, you, you've you've rekindled that and brought those memories back to me a, a fair bit. You know, um, you know, I, I, I run a lot of programs up here. I did six hundred and fifty kids, and during the last uh, last uh, holidays we had up here, six hundred and fifty kids, Aboriginal kids, uh, multicultural kids, uh, kids with disabilities, and things like that. You know, there to me, um, you know, if I can help any of those kids 
that's a, a victory to me. Um, you know, because my life was changed uh, back in um, in 1990 uh, when I um, I got a phone call from a, a mum and said, uh, you know, Brian, it's Rhonda here. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I'd, I'd like it if my son likes basketball and he's in hospital. He's got uh, um, cancer of the spine, and uh, you know, would you come and visit him? So. I took Andre Moore and we went over and saw him. And we lost that grand final that year. And Jason, uh, I mean, Justin came, used to come to the games. We'd take him to the games. He'd come into the rooms after the game. And when we lost that grand final to Perth, I'm sitting in a big lounge chair at Boondle feeling sorry for myself for losing the game. You know, I, I was a, wasn't a very good loser, to be honest with you. I loved to win and, and loved to compete as a player and a coach. But I looked up at this kid and I said, hey, Curly, wake up yourself. You know, you're worried about losing a game of basketball tonight. There's going to be thousands of more basketball games. This kid's going to lose the biggest game of his life in, you know, soon. And, and he passed away seven weeks later, two weeks short of his birthday. You know, so that brought me back to reality a lot more and to think, you know, don't, don't feel sorry for yourself. And, you know, I tell that story to kids as well now about this young lad. And, and you know, we set up a great... Um, charity for him and you know in memory of him and uh, so the, they're the things that you, you do and I, and I love doing a lot of things in the community um, uh, I give back a lot and uh, you know we it, but it's it's enjoyable just giving back and like I said it went on one tournaments and things like that it was giving that back to the people down there and uh, in Melbourne and to St Kilda and uh, and also when I came back here to Brisbane and uh, I I'll, I'll keep giving. I will keep giving. You know, we, uh, we we're all about that up here. You know, we help kids with uniforms and shoes and things like that. Because no kid should go without shoes. No kid should be deprived of not being able to play sports. So I'll do as much as I can while I can for those kids. And they're they're victories for me. They're all they're all championships for me. That's how I look at it. You know, and uh, but I think those those championships mean a lot more. Then a, a silver. I haven't even got any trophies from the championships. So I don't know where they've gone, or I've lent them to people or the clubs, and I never got them back. But I've got the memories, and you can't take those away from me. It's a really good perspective you've got there that you're sitting there and feeling sorry for yourself losing a game of basketball when there are obviously bigger things in life, and it is just a game at the end of the day. But Thinking about that game, 1990 championship, when you lost to the Wildcats, and they were a very good team back then with Ricky Grace and James Crawford, Mike Ellis, Tiny Pinder. You lose the series 2-1. With what happened with Cal Bruton, he leads the Wildcats and defeats you in the grand final series. I know you said there were bigger things going on in life, but how did you deal with that? Yes, it's almost uh, deja vu. In 87, the second game score was 106 to 87 to Brisbane. The other way around. Congratulations to Perth. Well done. They've come back from adversity after losing the second game by 16 points. Well, you know, nationally, we, and I think rivalry in sport is healthy for sport. Um, you know, you know, certain teams like to beat certain teams. 
And when Cal went over, yeah, we wanted to be Perth all the time. Um, and we were all on the same page about it. And, you know, it's not for spite or anger and things like that, but you, you just build up that um, uh, that feeling and, and, you know, that uh, probably an aggressive feeling in lots of ways. But, you know, after the game, you know, I can see that they, they were a better team on the night. And like you say, they had a great team. We had a chance to win it and uh, it, it got away from us. But they were too good for us on the night once more. Um, you know, I, I hated losing and... Uh, you know, I still hate thinking about losing that game, to be honest with you, but it's over. It's over. You've got to move on. You can't dwell on the past. You know, I'm, I'm all, at my age now, I'm, I want to live in the future. You know, it's what I do for the, you know, the next phase of my life that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in now. And, uh, but if I sit worrying about those sort of things, it's going to eat away at me and things like that. And, uh, too many times, you know, we, we just got to, like I said, get on with life, and uh, and that's what I'm doing now. And people say to me, you know, why you keep coaching? Why are you doing this? Why are you getting up at six o'clock in the morning coaching these kids in winter and things like that? I said because I want to, and I enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing it. And when the enjoyment stops, then maybe Brian Curl will stop. But at the moment, I can't see me stopping. And everyone keeps telling me you got to slow down. You got to slow down. Why have I got to slow down? I'm enjoying what I'm doing, and I'm giving back to those kids. And don't forget, like when I took up the game, I didn't know anything about it. And there were people that helped me, like Ben Sicky and, uh, you know, my original coach, guys like that. And uh, and there was people in, you know, Kenny Cole helped me in my career as well. He taught me how to win. And, uh, you know, Lindsay Gaze had a big bearing on my career as well. And uh, so that that's why I love giving back. Those guys gave me time for me to get to where I am and for me to get to talk to you. So why would, you know, that's so that's why I'll give back and, and I always will give back. I get criticized, I get burnt sometimes for helping people out and, you know, or I'll coach them for nothing and something like that and then they'll go somewhere else and pay someone to coach it. But, you know, that, that, that's life and that's how people are. But, you know, so what? What am I gonna do? Sit there and think, I, I, I don't judge every people. Everybody's the same. Not everybody's the same. And, and I've got some youth people, some lovely people. And uh, um, I, spoke, I coached 10 young kids from Taiwan today. And I've been doing that for a month now, of a Sunday afternoon for, for an hour and a half. So, you know, they're the things that are fantastic, I think. And, and I love sport. I love all all all, uh, all sports. You know, I'm interested in every, every sport. Um, you know, some I like better than others. You know, that's only a natural thing. But, you know, I think this, uh, you know, the, the country is a great country and, you know, we're a great sporting nation for the population that we have here. But for me to be part of that population, that part of the population to, to play for Australia, a young lad asked me yesterday, Brian, what was it like playing in the Olympics? You know, what was it like coaching in, in Seoul? You know, and that's great because, you know, young kids don't know what I've done. I, when, you know, and I ask the young kids when I do a clinic, you know, you guys know what I've done and what and they say, no. I say, well, go home, don't ask your parents, ask your grandparents, because they're the ones that know all about Brian Curl. And don't forget, we didn't have Google and uh, YouTube and all that sort of stuff back when, uh, you know, people asked me, oh, you got any videos of your game? I said, I doubt it. And I said, it'll probably be in black and white. But, you know, they, they do look up now and uh, I encourage the kids to find out about the game, learn about the game here in the history of the game here in um, in Australia, because I think that's important for them to know that. 
your passion for bringing up the next generation and helping out is really you give back and that's what makes you I think a special person is that you've done what you needed to do in the game and now you're giving back because you want to see the game continue to grow but more than that you actually want to see kids succeed and that's something that I think really speaks volumes of you and the person that you are well Ben you know there's two things I tell kids I said number one your number one priority in life is your family alright number two is your education all right. I didn't have a great family upbringing and I didn't have a great education. I dropped out in year 10. I don't want to see kids going through that like what I did. You know, and it was foolish of what I did, mate. I, I don't tell them to stay in school. I never tell kids that you've got to do this or you've got to do that. I suggest to them and I recommend to them that, hey, it's important. Your family will always be there for you. But also, you need to have an education. You don't know what's around the corner, injury-wise or something like that. And the other thing is, you know, there's only a small percentage in Australia that make enough money to retire on what they made in sport. Yeah, not everyone's like a, a Dustin Martin that, you know, will never have to work a day in their life after they retire. Mm. It's very, very or, rare. That's right. Or Luke Longley or, um, you know, players like that, you know. And they, you know, Luke, you know, I'm, I'm, I played against Luke and then I had the pleasure and, you know, the great honour of coaching Luke um, in the 88 Olympics. So, you know, there's some great memories and uh, it, 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 is, it is fabulous to, uh, you know, and look, I, I treat everybody equal. I treat politicians and general managers and, uh, you know, uh, truck drivers or whatever you want to call it. I, I treat everybody the same. I don't think uh, I'm above anybody at all. Um, you know, I, I collect a lot of stuff here for homeless people as well. Um, I was pretty sad the other night. I walked down the mall in Brisbane. I see a, a homeless guy sleeping on a on a on a on a chair a seat in the mall in Brisbane. And nobody should live that way. Nobody should live that way in this day and age. So, you know, I, you know, so things like that. And mate, look, it's I, I love life and uh, and I'm enjoying life. Uh, like I said, and uh, you know, when young kids come up to me and. Uh, uh, you know, and say, hey, I saw you at the Bullets last night or, you know, I saw you at the shopping centre and things like that. It, it's fantastic. It gives you a great feeling, to be honest with you. For those of you who do not know, three-quarter time here on A5Q means giving you all a little bit of a sneak peek preview of another guest I have coming on the show in due time. Now, another guest I've had the pleasure of sitting down and having a chat to is inaugural Perth Wildcat captain, Mike Ellis. He, he is a lovely bloke to chat to first off and he shares some incredible stories. He talks about those early days at the Perth Wildcats when of course they were known as the West State Wildcats. He talks about numerous things that occurred, um, you know, all, some of the background stories of the Perth Wildcats including uh, the tragic death of Scott Fenton. He talks about off-court issues with Tiny Pinder, Cal Bruton's sort of acrimonious end at the end of the 1990 season which was was a bit weird because they won the championship that year. So he talks about the the great times of the the ninety championship, and then the 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 departure of Cal Bruton. Talks about Murray Arnold's time at the club as well, and how his retirement was probably a little bit earlier than he would have liked. So here's a little snippet. Clearly, it's in the back of your mind. You're, you know, you're constantly thinking, what 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 is that about? Because we had no idea. We had no idea about any of that. Um, it was the first time we'd seen anything. Uh, like that, the first time we'd heard anything um, relating to Tiny. So, we had no idea what it was for, why it 
was. You know, we didn't know what the charges were. We didn't know any of that. So all we know is he'd been arrested. So it could have been for anything. So as players, we kind of rallied around him and said, oh, let's, let's just focus on this for the time being. Let's deal with that afterwards. Let's deal with this. Let's, let's take care of business here, and then we'll take care of that business afterwards. So he got a huge amount of support in actual fact. And uh, we came out. And I, I think, you know what I think it did? It actually bonded us closer. It really did as a group, and it galvanised us. Um, and we went out, and we, we played really well, and, and Tiny was ridiculous in it. Then after the game, then we found out a little bit more detail. The following day, we had a team meeting, and Terry came in and explained what was going on and what had happened. Whether you're a Wildcats fan or not, Mike Ellis is a must-listen to, and an episode I think everybody's going to really enjoy. But for now, let's get back to four-time NBL Championship coach, Brian Curl. Later on in your coaching career, when you said you got sacked three times, so you coached the Bullets until 1992... And then you came back in, I think, 1998. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I got sacked in 92 um, there by the, the owners of the club. That one of the biggest mistakes I made was uh, agreeing to uh, turn the bullets over to private ownership. That was the biggest mistake I, I believe that I, I made. And if I have any, they say you shouldn't have any regrets. And, you know, there's a few of us, uh, we, we think that wasn't a great move in the end. Um, and it, it wasn't a successful move anyway. But, yeah, and then um, in 1998, I think it was, yeah, then the Bullets came, but they, uh, the Broncos owned them, and uh, they came back and uh, asked me, you know, would I coach? There were some issues going on uh, behind the scenes, and I didn't, you know. But I got convinced Wayne Bennett, I'm not sure if you've heard of Wayne Bennett down there and Adelaide, but, you know, one of the greatest, well, the greatest rugby league coach in Australian history. But Wayne said to me, Curly, you're wasting your time doing what you're doing. You should be coaching. That's you. And uh, Wayne encouraged me to come back and coach, and I did. I had a three-year deal, <clears throat> and it was very um, a good move. And the first year we come back, we played off in the quarter in the semifinals. So, um, and I had a great team that year with Woodbury and uh, Chuck Cornegay and, uh, you know, some, some real super players, Leroy and, and Robert Sibley. And, you know, we, we did very, very well considering. So, yeah, look, that that's uh, how it turns out. And, you know, it, it all worked out in the end. Was it different the second time around coaching the Bullets? Yeah, very different, you know, because, um, you know, there was high expectations on me, of course. Um, you know, like really... And I was in a no-win situation. Like if I win a tournament championship or if I finish in the finals, they they sort of expect it. But if I don't, then you know, oh, you know, he's too, he shouldn't have been coaching. He'd been out of the game for too long and things like that. But uh, you know, I had a, a couple of very good assistant coaches, uh, and Stevie McLeod, and then Bruce Palmer was uh, helped me with assistant coaching as well. So I thought we we did very well. Um, but then you know the club went through a situation where they, uh, you know, took out new owners, came in, the Broncos sold it out or gave it away, whatever it was. And um, things changed, of course. And, uh, you know, uh, so at least, you know, I, I did what I did. And, uh, you know, it was hard, but, you know, um, that, that, like I keep saying, that's, that's life and uh, you've got to move on. Was that disappointing, considering the success you had, to then come back and you made the playoffs two of the three years but to sort of end it on that terms was that a bit 
Did that leave a bit of a sour taste in your mouth at all? Yeah, it, it did, you know, because uh, that first year when I, uh, well, the the second year uh, when I took over when, uh, uh, when Eddie Groves bought the team, you know, there was, uh, I, it was all a late decision and, and I really got all the players that nobody else wanted, um, you know, and it wasn't a great season for us. Uh, you know, we, we struggled, we had a little bit of trouble with, uh, with a couple of Americans and things like that. But, you know, we, we didn't have uh, a great Aussie uh, content, which was, um, you know, was just one of those things that was disappointing. But, you know, and then, then we, in a year after that, then we did very well again. But, yeah, but, you know, like, it's not easy to make finals. Um, as you can see at the moment in the NBL, how there's still, I think, six or seven teams that can make the final four. Um, although the top three, I think, are pretty well assured now of, the, of their spot in there. So, you know, finishing the finals is okay, but, you know, naturally we all want to win the grand finals and uh, that's the uh, the pinnacle. And, uh, you know, and I love, like I said, love winning grand finals. And, you know, like, you know, when I went down to Melbourne and we played with some, when I joined St Kilda, you know, St Kilda had never beaten the Melbourne Tigers until 1968 when Kenny Cole came back and joined us and, and, and taught us how to win because... You know, we had a case that previously says, oh, look, every time we played Melbourne, I don't expect you to win tonight. You know, this team is a great team. You know, got all these Olympians. And, you know, well, you know, if you think like that, you you, you get those results. And uh, But the first game we played when Kenny Cole Cases was up in Swan Hill in a, in a New Year's uh, tournament, we beat them. Because Kenny got instilled in us that, hey, you're as good as they are. You can beat them and uh, you will beat them. So... There's there's a great thing you know with Kenny Cole like you know I I talk to him quite regularly because you know his health's not that great but you know and we we talk about the old days you know Cole still lives the old days and I say yeah mate yeah we were great but uh, that's history now but uh, you know but what we did set a precedent in Australian basketball with Kenny Cole and we we went down there won that championship the second year I got down there well first year we lost the grand final to Melbourne by twenty or something. The next after that, we had a dynasty there in Victorian basketball, and uh, you know, like Victorian teams, oh, Australian teams and Victorian teams were stacked with Melbourne Tigers players. But uh, we went out there, and boy, oh boy, we competed with them and we beat them um, more than enough. So yeah, great times. Ken Cole is a larger-than-life figure. He's very, very interesting character to listen to. I've, I've listened to a lot of interviews with him and watched him on documentaries, and he's. As I said, very larger than life figure. Yeah, Kenny is unique. Um, Kenny is is very very unique. Um, like I said, I go back to 1968 uh, when he came back and coaches. I knew him before they went to Mexico because uh, Kenny they went to Mexico and they didn't qualify. And our manager Bruce Johnson met him at the airport and said, "Coley, you know, uh, I think he paid him a few hundred dollars to coaches, which was big money in those days." And uh, but yeah, he uh, his training methods were were totally different to everybody else. And Coley played and coached. Um, so we we won. I'm very fortunate playing and coaching. You can't do it these days. But I had Ken Cole and I had David Lindstrom. Two two. Well, Kenny was a great Australian player, of course. And David Lindstrom was one of the best Americans that ever come out here. And you talk about I had two coaches that taught you how to win. And, uh, and I took that into my coaching as well when I took those things from him. But two different style of players, but Coley, you know, 
he uh, we, we trained harder than we played. We're not going to say that. We trained hard. Games were a lot of our games were just formalities, you know, because we we trained harder than, than we played some of the games. And I'm not saying we didn't try to play hard, but that's just how it was. And we would train for two hours, and I tell you, you know, you didn't get five minute or ten minute drink break. You you trained, and we uh, we ground and you know grind away and grind away and. Uh, we always left there, you know, we, 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 we left everything on the court um, every day when we trained uh, together. And, and we always played, you know, at a serious um, serious attitude. And, and that's what he brought to the team and he brought to the club. And, uh, you know, Kenny's controversial and things like that. I think those people are, are very important to the game, how Kenny was. And uh, I said to him once there towards his twilight, he said, Kenny, when are you going to retire? He said, Curly, when they stopped booing me, that was his attitude. So the more people booed him, the more Kenny was going to keep playing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and that's what he was like, you know. So did you want to continue coaching or had you had enough anyway? No, you know, there's that old saying, I think, you know, professional coaches, those who have been sacked and those who are waiting to be sacked. And after three times, I thought there was a message there and um, I thought, you know, Okay, I'm not enjoying it. Uh, the game's changed a lot. Uh, and, you know, we had owners that uh, never played basketball or never read a book on basketball, but suddenly became experts and things like that. So that was, you know, that enjoyment out of it. But look, I made a lot of friends up, up here in Brisbane. I made a lot of friends in Melbourne. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends in Adelaide. Adelaide you know, we had fierce competitions against Adelaide and things like that, you know. Um, I still remember a time at the at the Apollo Stadium and uh, when St Kilda were playing out there, I think it was a club championship or something like that, and uh, a certain player, I came down to the rebound, I could have landed on his chest, but I straddled my feet at the last moment and uh, the next minute his wife comes out of the stand with an umbrella and starts beating up on me. So, oh, <laughs> really? Was, uh, and, you know, and I just froze and then the whole stadium laughing like crazy and she walks back timidly and I just turned to the player and said, you always get your missus to do your fights for you, so stand oh, up man. for you. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're great his stories like that, you know, and, and like that guy, uh, you know, I know who it was and we, we, we when I see him, and which is not regular, of course, we do talk and, uh, you know, like there's so many great stories like that, and uh, in, in the game, and uh, you know, like I said, I love playing against Al Green and coaching against Al Green. I think you know, uh, you know, like you, you talk about. I'm sorry, we're going back over Al Granity, but you know, the chairman of the boards, you know, like hey, he's got to rank up there as one of the greatest players that's come out here too. He would. I mean, I've I've had Al Green on the show, and he to listen to him is just. He's fantastic. His story is incredible. But yes, Mark yeah. Mark Davis, chairman of the boards, he he was a very, very good player as well back in the day. And he didn't talk much or anything like that. He just went about and did his business. And uh, boy, oh boy, you know, he was he was one tough player to, to handle. And, uh, you know, so, you know, we, we could you could do a whole chapter on this, mate, talking about those past players and things like that. We have had some great players out here in Australia. And it has been the the strength of Australian basketball and it's done so much for Australian basketball, I feel. Look, to me personally, and I mean, I'm, I'm only 24, but I think there is nothing better than old school 80s, 90s NBL. So even just to watch highlights, I just love everything that basketball was back then and still today, but just back in your day, 
I think that was the pinnacle of Australian basketball. It was absolutely awesome to watch. And I wish that well, I could. I wish I could have been around to actually see it live. Well, you, you, I'm sorry, Dan. You, you did miss a great time, and that's not your fault. But look, mate, it was. And like, what about we when we played here in Brisbane? Like, how's this for a road trip? We'd we'd fly over to Perth, play Perth on Friday night, fly to Adelaide Saturday morning, play Adelaide Saturday night, then fly to Melbourne on Sunday morning and play. Melbourne Tigers or somebody in the afternoon. How's that for a three-day trip? Pretty relaxed weekend. Yeah, it was a great weekend. You know, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, I play. played seventeen games. <laughs> yeah, so that, that that's what it was like in, in those days. You know, but we never complained about it. We uh, you had to take it in your stride, and uh, you know, it, it was uh, that was you know. But like I say, it was great basketball and. Uh, I, I look. I've got to be honest with you. I get a bit bored watching some of the style of play that some of the coaches are playing now. Honestly, I thought uh, St Kilda. We played in the Brisbane Bullets. Played some of the most exciting basketball, brand of basketball that you could ever see, and uh, people loved it. You know about scoring, and you know we were full court defense and stuff like that. You know, it was not like it is today. You know, and you see these sixty-six something scores. I, I remember in. Um, when Coley coached us in those glory years, one year we averaged something like 120 points a game. You know, and it wasn't, it was just run and gun and everything. It was just the way we played. We were up up and just pushing people all the time and uh, we'd get down there and we weren't afraid to shoot. It, uh, it wasn't as slow. The game's too slow at the moment, as like I, I believe. And uh, It's a bit overly, over, um, what's the word, overly strategized. Well, yeah, and you know, and I, you listen to coaches, every, most coaches at the time as they're talking about offense, they don't talk about defense. And, uh, you know, they worry about scoring the points. I'd be worrying more about stopping the other team from scoring. And uh, I always believe that, you know, you get your defense can trigger off your offense. So if you get some steals and you pressure them up, you get some easy baskets. And that's what it's all about. But they don't want to, that's, that's how things change. That's, that's evolution, I guess. And, um, you know, it's the same with the NBA. Look how it's changed over the years. You know, when, the, Remember when Kareem and those big guys uh, dominated in the paint? Now, big guy, gosh, he's got to get some shots up or get the ball in the warm-ups because he doesn't see it too much uh, during the game now. He's setting screens and rolling. So, you know, it, that's how things is. It changes and all sports are the same. You can't just, uh, you know, single out basketball. Yeah, it's, it's just unfortunate. Like it, in 20 years' time, the, the game will be even different to what it is now. Yes, it's just it's never you're never going to stop that. Very, very true, and that's just that's just uh, well, it's everything in life, isn't it? You know, like uh, one of the great. Well, I was fortunate enough. Like, uh, would I have made the Australian team uh, in those days if we had laptops and uh, phones and uh, playstations and all that? <laughs> Social media. I didn't have no. I didn't have any distractions, mate. You know. Like my little grandson this morning, I trained him for an hour and he said, oh, I've got to go home now. I said, what for? He said, oh, I've got to go home. So I said to my son, I said, why has he got to go home? I said, you know, he's only wants to go and play on the PlayStation. He's 10 years old. I said, no, mate, you're not going to get any better going home and sitting on the PlayStation. So we might trade for another hour. You know, yeah, this is how it's changed and this is the, the big thing. But I, I was fortunate enough, uh, I didn't have the uh, attractions, distractions like that. And, you know, it's... Uh, so be it and uh, but yeah I, I it just uh, it amazes me today how kids 
um, like I said, you know, I worked, worked a five and a half day a week uh, and I worked, um, you know, eight, ten hours a day. So, but, you know, still played for Australia. But, you know. So. In three years, not bad effort. <laughs> no, it was a good day. It was good, but yeah. But uh, no, mate, look, I've got some great, great memories, and uh, and I met some great people, and uh, you know, some fantastic people, and uh, you know, I still got a lot of great friends, and not not just in basketball, but in in society and things like that. And uh, you know, like I said, it's it's just a joy to be around uh, young people and and helping them to. Well, hopefully, you know, they achieve. I got I got a six foot nine. African boy, he's uh, only 14 and he wears a size 20 shoe that, you know, I'm trying to get him. He, he's got an ounce of my work ethic, but I'm trying to convince him that, hey, you want to be good. This is what I did. This is what I had to do. And you, he's got, like, he's more athletic than I do. He's taller than I am naturally. But he could be anything, this kid, if somebody, if I can just get him to think the way I used to think. Now, that's going to be a big challenge, but... You know, and I've got another young boy who's come through my system and, uh, you know, he's he's in the top, uh, he's just made the under-16 Queensland State team. So, you know, it, uh, I don't get many kids at that level because I, I get the ones that fly under the radar that don't get all the elite coaching from the state organisations or Australian basketball. Yeah, because as we said before, that's really interesting. He could be something special, but he doesn't see it yet. But you see what he could be. And sometimes you need that other person to push you because you get in your own head. You say to yourself, I'm not good enough, I can't do this. But sometimes you need that other person, that mentor, to actually push you to say you can achieve it, but you've got to work yeah. for it. Yeah. And like I said, you know, you, you know, I try to encourage them more than anything instead of telling them that, that this is what they've got to do. It's, it's encouraging them to do it. But like I said here, he's been restricted a bit by his sisters because... Uh, he neglected school, and uh, so they grounded him there for a while, and I supported him. I, and as, as hard as it was to have him not have him play for my under-16 team, you know, his education is, is too important to him as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I supported them, and now the family's supporting me back. You know, I think, like I said earlier, it's important for the education, and uh, he needs to learn that discipline. He's only 14, he's only a young boy, but, you know, here he is, he's towers over everybody uh, and you know he's he's just a monster out there and uh, but he could go anywhere he really could but you know we, we want to make I, I think it's important to help these kids become good people as well uh, I'm not saying they're bad people but I mean you know good people or better people maybe that's the, the, the best way to say it and uh, and that's what I'm all about you know because I think there's there's so much that young kids have got to learn these days and, and are missing out on learning it's all about what you give back, I feel. I mean, you're, you know, the best person for that. But I think if you make something of yourself, you've got to help other people get to where you are. And I think that's one thing that you do really well. Yeah, thanks. You know, I appreciate you saying that, mate. But, you know, like, it's not rocket science, mate, and anything like that. I, I just, see, I, you know, I, I haven't got any degrees at university or anything like that but you know I've got a degree in common sense and, uh, and I think that's very very important and I use common sense a lot in my life in my business now that you know I put through um, 75 kids this morning uh, in private lessons and group training because you know I, I, they love coming to me because of it's not just the basketball I talk to their 
I've got a young, a couple of young kids, you know, their confidence is down. I've, I've had people coming to me with, you know, um, anxiety and things like that. And, and we've turned them around. A young boy has come to my academy. He's now, he's, I'm mentoring him in coaching and he's coaching junior teams and, and he, he helped. I've got him working for me every Saturday, Sunday morning. And giving this young fellow, you know, an opportunity. He's going to university now. He's going to be a teacher. But when he came to us, he was uh, he was a wreck. He was a complete wreck. But you know, he's never going to be great basketball. He accepts that fact. But he loves playing, and we encourage him to play and and things like that. But it, it's the other things in life that he's he's now picked up on. And uh, so you know, it, it's not just all about winning a game. It's they 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 the game winning things as far as I'm concerned that we've helped young Tommy in this area here. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's coming along really good, um, doing a great job sort of thing for his age. He's only 19, but, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a great feeling to see that those sort of things happen. What sort of a fulfilment does it give you when you know you've made such a difference in young kids' lives? And, and to think that perhaps if you hadn't been there to help, to help them out, their life may have not been what it could be. You know... I, I get down on myself because I'd, I wish I could do more. Uh, I want to do more. And I'm hopefully within the next 12 months something's going to happen uh, that we're working on that I can be, uh, give kids a lot more uh, value back and, and a lot more support. Um, you know, there's a lot of things going on in this world that young kids are battling against, as we all know. And... Uh, I, I want to try and help those kids. Like I said earlier, I do work with kids in youth justice who are out on bail and things like that. Um, I don't give up on those kids. Um, we're all They're all humans, just like all of us, and they, they need the opportunity. They haven't had, they haven't been fortunate enough to, you know, be clothed and wearing shoes and, and, and have them um, a good home life. And, and those things give me a lot of, you know, uh, four years ago, I, I kept a young fella um, out of the detention centre. Um, not only saved the government a couple of hundred thousand dollars, but it, it, that to me was a great, great success. And the young lad's working now. Um, you know, he came from, a, you know, his mother had nine kids and things like that. And he was facing, um, you know, a long period um, in detention centre. But, you know, and, and that, that was a, that's a super win again. But that, that, that's helping society as well. Um, but just to you know, support these kids. And, uh, you know, uh, like I said, I do a lot with um, Murray kids up here, Indigenous kids, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of great athletes in the Indigenous community. It's great now what Paddy Mills is doing for the Indigenous kids Australia-wide. You know, and, uh, yes, it's to, it's been a long time coming um, that, uh, you know, the state bodies and also the national body do more because... You know, we've had some great, you know, like Michael Armat, the first Indigenous player that come out of, played, come out of Adelaide sort of thing. Well, he's a Northern Territory boy, but, you know, he was still at, played in Adelaide. you got Danny Morsu, you know, you got Nathan J.Y., and now you got Paddy Mills. You know, there's four players, and I tell you, you know, we've probably missed out on probably another 20 or 30 because, you know, we, we didn't give them, you know, that support. They probably need a little bit support, more support. And that's that's what we've got to do with uh, with those uh, indigenous kids. You know, Michael. Uh, I'll tell you a story about Michael Daniel. That in 1987-88, when they were getting preparing in Melbourne for the um, for the um, Australian team to go to Mexico for the um, 
uh, was that the 60, 68 Olympics. And, uh, and, you know, I used to sit there and watch the Australian team train because I, I would say, you know, I, I can be better than that kid there and I can make the team because I'm better than this guy here and that. But Michael came up to me after one training session and put his arm his, on my shoulder and he said, uh, Curly, you may not know me or much about me. He said, but, um, mate, you know, I'm Michael Arvin. I said, I know who you are, Michael. I've seen you play and, you know, you, I, I just love the way you play. He said to me, he said, Curly, if there's everything you want or you want any support or you need anything, you give me a call. And, you know, my, I haven't forgotten that. I haven't forgotten that. Now, you know, you say what I'm doing there, but if someone come out of their way to say that to me, you know, uh, well, he's you know, one of the great Indigenous players and one of the great Australian players. You know, I keep contact with his, uh, his daughters and... Uh, in Adelaide and uh, his son over in the States. And Michael inspired me, you know, he, he inspired me to to go on and uh, believe in myself as well. So, you know, I've been blessed that someone will go out of their way. So I want to do that back. It's, it's a way of giving back because I know what it meant to me when someone said that to me. So it, you don't have to go to university to learn that this is what you've got to do to help other people, do you? You know, it, it, to me, it's the thing to do. And what Michael Ahmed did for me that day was, oh, I'll never forget that at Elwood Park Stadium. Isn't that a beautiful story? And I think, I think there is always a reason why people are the way they are. How they've been brought up is always got something to do with the person they are in adulthood. For sure. And, you know, Michael, you know, um, like I said, in, in all respect to his family, they're lovely, lovely people. And, uh, you know, I... I'm glad that Adelaide has now um, inducted him into the South Australian Sports Water, uh, uh, Hall of Fame and, and the Basketball Hall of Fame because he did. You know, you know, we were talking about American players before. You know, one of the greatest American players that he played in Adelaide a lot was Kenny Richardson. Like, yeah, Kenny yeah. Richardson was a one hell cats. of a warrior. Where's he that? was one of the toughest guys I've ever coached. And, and you know, I coached him for one year. Um, he was just a beast, Kenny Richardson. He lived hard and he played hard. And, uh, you know, he, that was the sort of guy. And Kenny Richardson was one of those guys, you know, talking to him right up to the time of his death, you know, that was always inspiring me and, you know, and encouraging me to keep doing what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget that with Kenny. And, uh, you know, I remember the, the last game I coached him, um, we played the... We got beaten in the um, semi-finals of the Australian Club Championship in, in Melbourne, and uh, we had to play, you know, for third, third and fourth the next day, and you know everyone gets fired up for that. But anyway, Kenny and uh, another guy called Dean Martin turned up right on game time, uh, just about the ball to be thrown up, and uh, I sat them both down. I didn't start them. Well, you know, Dean Martin he spat the dummy, and uh, he just powdered the whole game. Kenny Richardson, when I brought him on after about six or seven minutes, Kenny ended up with 40-something points and, I don't know, countless rebounds because that's how Kenny was. You know, they're the guys that are winners and that's why he won things in, in Adelaide and uh, uh, and he, he, was, he was a great player. I tell you, he was a great player and he had those big mitts and he could hold that ball and do some great things. So, you know, there's another guy, you know, that, uh, that people forget about and Kenny did that over a number of years as well I think he was very underrated he was probably more uh, not not so much like in the shadows but drowned out 
per se by the likes of like Al Green and even like Ray Wood and these sort of guys, I think he kind of didn't get as much, it wasn't as heralded as some of those players and like Daryl Pierce and um, even Mark Davis. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, if I had to, if I pick any all-star teams now, you know, Kenny Richardson's always on my list and uh, that's how much I thought of him. But uh, yeah, you know, he had a lot of great players around him at the time and uh you know, but just a boy, oh boy, was he a competitor, and uh, he was, he was, you know, like I said, he was just a hard nut to play against, and uh, easy to coach. You didn't have to tell him much. Uh, you know, he, he knew what to do, and uh, so I've, you know, I've always admired him for that. Yeah, for sure, Brian. Just as we are about to close up now, I've got a few last few questions for you, and I always ask my guests these questions, and and they're my favourite questions to ask. So, in your Entire career in basketball, who is in any club, any league, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? Who is the best coach you ever played under and why? And for you, I'm going to add a last question. Who's the best player you ever coached and why? Cool. Now, you're talking, well, it depends on if you're talking on an Australian basis or um, any club basis. Any player, Um, period. Look, you know, like I said, I had, I played with Kenny Cole and uh, and David Lindstrom, and uh, you know it, it's hard to separate those two. So if I could give a, a double-headed uh, answer, I would say those two there, because you know it's very hard to be a player coach, but those guys did it very very well, and uh, you know I, I think they they were probably the uh, the best two that I've ever played with. That's for sure. Oh, well, you see, I played against Doug Collins and uh, the Hagen and Brewer in the 72 Olympics. And, uh, you know, I, I got 14, 15 points against them. And, uh, and that was the infamous um, uh, Olympic sort of thing for the Americans. So I would say those guys there, but <laughs> definitely those guys, you know. And I played against a lot of NBA players on tours to the States as well. So it's a, it's a very... Uh, you know, so there's so many, but I, I would say those guys and like they were just athletes. And like I said, I wasn't a great athlete, but boy, boy, you just learned it. You know, a bit like Larry Bird, he competed with some of the best athletes ever played in the NBL. Once more, I come back to Lindstrom and Cole um, because David Lindstrom was a fierce competitor. They were both fierce competitors. Lindstrom was a real hard nosed coach. You know, he. We played one Friday night, and on Sunday morning, he said we didn't play. We we won by 20, but he said we should have won by 40. So he made us run for 30 minutes. Um, so I, I should say I don't like him, but you know, to me that taught us a lesson, and uh, and, and and he was right. But yeah, you know, they, they were look, they they were two of the best that I think I I ever ever played for. I played with some great Australian players as well, um, as you know, but. Uh, those two stand out to me. You know, and I, you know, I played under Lindsay Gaze and he was a great coach. Uh, there's no doubt about that. He was different. He was, uh, you know, uh, more of a use the ball, use the ball sort of thing. And but uh, you know, he he knew the game inside and out. And the one thing I respect about Lindsay, I, I worked for Victorian Basketball, um, doing the marketing and promotions there for a while, and. Uh, and, you know, if I had a game and I wanted to ask Lindsay about anything, any part of the game or what would he suggest, Lindsay always had the time to tell you that, even though I might be playing him 
that week and something like that, or he may have beaten me the, the night before. I could always sit down with Lindsay and say, hey, you know, can you give me a little bit of help here? I've never been afraid to ask anybody for help or uh, advice and things like that. And uh, I learned a lot from Americans coming over here and getting in their ear and um, asking them about the game. I tried to watch, because in those days, of course, you know, we didn't have, um, we didn't even have coaching books or anything like that, or, or we couldn't go onto Google and do anything like that. It's only when we went to America, we picked up videos or something like that, that we got those resources. So today, there's so many resources there for coaches and players. But, you know, Lindsay, I, I honestly, I, I do have a, a lot of respect for him. And uh, even though when we played against him, uh, I remember a colleague, my job was to do uh, control the paint, uh, make sure no one got in the keyway. And if they did, I had to uh, bury them. And I think I put Lindsay in the first row there one night and a um, colleague uh, subbed me out because he said, I told you to put him in the second row. So. Um, that was that was how how Coley was, but you know Lindsay, like I said, he still would get up and after the game would shake your hand and things like that. So we had a fierce rivalry against the Melbourne uh, Tigers, as they were called Melbourne Church in those days. So you know, and, that, and that's what I loved about the game. There's some people too that you know kept it going after you walked off the court, but not not Lindsay guys. And you know, he's the he's not you know not in the best of health these days, but. I think it's great that he's written a book now because he's got so much history. Him and Ken Watson, you know, sat down the 56 Olympics and virtually, uh, you know, got basketball in Australia going. So I don't think you've got to respect those sort of guys. Yeah, absolutely. I've, uh, I've just bought his book. Actually, I haven't read it yet, but I do have it looking at it right now on my, um, my bookshelf. And just last one, who is the best player you ever coached and why? Well, I'm going to give you two answers here, Rocky Smith and Leroy Loggins, um, you know, and don't ask me who, you know, Lee and I, you know, we, we won a lot together and uh, Leroy Loggins, uh, Leroy and I never had had a blue except for that, Not we didn't have a blue in that last year, but, you know, if Leroy made a mistake, he would look after, over to me on the bench, nod his head, I'd nod my head back. I never yelled at Leroy Loggins. I didn't have to yell at Leroy Loggins. He was man enough to admit if he made a mistake. Um, and that's what I admired about him. He was a competitor. Um, he loved to win. Um, and uh, he was a, a great team man. Um, and you were never beaten when you had Leroy Loggins playing for you. And, you know, like I said, we had a, a lot of success with uh, with Rocky as well. But it was only for two years where I had Leroy for a lot longer. So I think the longevity, I'd have to say Leroy, um, because uh, we won a lot more together. and. Uh, you know, and we still got a very strong bond uh, towards each other as well. So I think that that's important to me. But, you know, you know Larry Sedstock was one of my favourites too. And if you want to talk, let's go American and Australian players. And I like to do that. You know, Larry, um, you know, I took him to Melbourne when he was 16 and uh, hadn't quite turned 17. And, uh, you know, he had a very illustrious career. And uh, he, he was a great athlete, super player, fierce competitor as well. Um, and uh, we had a lot of success together. Um, and that, that, you know, Danny Morsu is another great story there. I took him, picked him out of a, out of a, a pool hall and um, um, playing billiards up in uh, Cairns and uh, said he wanted to come to Melbourne and play basketball. And I said, yeah, great. I said, but you're not just going to play basketball. I'm going to make sure you go and get some education as well. And he worked for me also. And Danny, I think, was he was just a, a beautifully gifted athlete. Um, that you would pay to go and watch um, because, you know, he, he just glided up and down the court. He was like a hovercraft and uh, 
you know, I had a lot of time with Danny and I had, a, you know, a lot of um, uh, things in developing him and getting him to two Olympics. And I, I feel, you know, really proud about that and uh, giving him an opportunity. And he's up in Thursday Island now doing a lot of good things for his people up there and he's working for um, Indigenous government indigenous agency so you know there's, there's a lot of guys like that but you know like i said i had phil smythe as well uh, tony barnett there's so many of them um that i hadn't like steve Rooney is he's always been a favorite of mine and uh, um because um of his uh, competitiveness as well brian curl i admire you so much for making people want to be better within themselves i want to say thank you very much for volunteering your time to come on the show tonight it's been awesome to have a chat with you and i really respect everything you're doing in trying to make people better thanks daniel and you know i'm i'm overwhelmed that you asked me um to do and it's, it's quite interesting i've got to do a podcast with body nodge uh, tomorrow night so and and i think you know that that means something to me that you know that i i that you guys do respect what what I, i've done to the game and things like that and you know i'm not one for you know, I know we all like a pat on the back and things like that, but you know, you've you've enlightened me on my career tonight too. So you've uh, you've brought up things and uh, and brought back memories to me that you know I sort of probably take for granted, I guess. But uh, you know, and I appreciate um, you know you interviewing me tonight and uh, and uh, you know and all the best here, mate. You're 24. I can't remember when I was 24. So um, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm 75 now, and mate, I'm still going strong. So um, like I said, you know, good luck to you and uh, and whatever you do, mate. And, uh, and and thanks for having me. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.